Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Keith Spa opens the Scriptures. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open to the book of James, James chapter 5. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are drawing near to the end of a study in this marvelous little book. If you've been here all along, we're still drawing near to the end of our study in this marvelous little book. It seems that pretty much every week since we began this study about uh, 11 or so weeks ago, it seems that just about every week some somebody will come up to me after church and it's not the same person, but just always somebody would come up and say, Pastor, it sounds like you've been listening in on our conversations at home. And I want to assure you I have not done that. Your house is not bugged. There are times I kind of wonder what do you all talk about at home, and, but I, we haven't resorted to that, and I really don't want anybody to do that to me either, so we don't do that. But James does speak so directly, and he speaks so practically, and he speaks so relevantly to us that it does sound like he's been listening in to all of us. And I know I've heard many of you say it's been very convicting, and so it has to me as well. To all of us. Well, for those of you who have been tired of having your toes stepped on every Sunday, those of you who are tired of of having James stick a finger in your face and say, "Here's, here's your problem, you need to fix this, I've got good news today. Today, as we come here to James chapter 5, what we discover is James is not pointing the finger talking at you, he's pointing the finger talking at them. Finally, the focus is on somebody else. It's on those people, not on you. So you can relax at least a little bit this morning. You'll see what I mean. Follow along as I'll read for us the first few verses here in James chapter 5. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming on you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. There are some pretty strong words here of condemnation. And so as we come this morning to this passage, the first question in our mind ought to be, to whom is he speaking? Who is James talking about here? And I noticed this morning that he targets these words. He's addressing these words to people who, first of all, are rich. And I said this morning that he's uh, 
letting us off a little bit. He's not aiming these at us. Well, this one, we may be inclined to say, well, that gets me off the hook, but we know that we really are the rich. I don't have time to elaborate, but reality is the poorest among us are among the richest people in this world. The very poorest among us are among the richest in the world. So that doesn't let us off the hook, but I think the rest of it does. Verse 3, we notice that these people whom he is addressing are facing God's ultimate judgment and punishment. So that would exclude, hopefully, all of you. I hope that and trust that every one of you here this morning, those of you watching online, that you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the Scripture says. And so these folks who he is addressing here are not believers. It says there in verse 4, it says that they are guilty of defrauding and cheating their employees. And I certainly hope that none of you are guilty of such things. Verse 6, it says that these folks are as well guilty of persecuting and murdering righteous people. And again, I hope that none of you have done that lately or at all. You know, we've, as we've been going through this book, we've discovered that James has had some rather harsh words for us. Those of us in the body, those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, he's had some harsh and difficult words. But I'm confident that while there, are, there is a bit of a theological debate among some of the scholars out there about whom James is addressing here, I'm confident here that he's aiming in a different direction than you and I here as followers of Jesus. Taking us back to the beginning of the study, the beginning of the book, you may recall that this this letter was written by James. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was not a follower of Jesus when Jesus was leading and teaching and his disciples were following him around. James was with his other brothers and they were not followers of Jesus. It wasn't until the resurrection. After the resurrected Jesus, when James saw him, he believed. He became a committed, devoted follower of Jesus. And in fact, he became an elder, a leader, a pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And uh, we noted back in the beginning of the, of the book, in verse 1 of chapter 1, that he is addressing this letter, and he's addressing these words to those rich people we just talked about, but he's addressed this letter, as it says here in verse 1, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. It tells us something about who his target audience is for this whole letter. First of all, the 12 tribes, it tells us that, that these are people of Jewish descent. But they are people of Jewish descent who have become followers, believers in Jesus Christ. The next verse, he says, brothers. Over in chapter 2, verse 1 as well, he says, brothers. And he says, who hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's writing not only to Jewish, but to Jewish believers in Jesus And then thirdly, he says, who are in the dispersion, the diaspora. They have been scattered. They are living now in other lands, in other countries, in other cities, having been dispersed. They are now refugees. His target audience, in other words, are people who were most likely part of his church, part of his congregation there in Jerusalem. 
And because of their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they have been, at some point in time, have fled Jerusalem. You see, between when the church was founded in 33 A.D. and when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., in that 37 years, there were a number of great persecutions of believers, of Christians, there in Jerusalem. A few of those are described in the book of Acts. Others happened later that aren't mentioned there. And so many of the believers that were there had to run for their lives, leaving behind property. Some had already been in prison. Some had been killed. And so these believers have scattered, and James writes this letter to be of encouragement to them. Right after he gives his greeting there in chapter 1, James says to these believers, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. His, his audience are people who are undergoing severe trials, difficult times. In other words, from just that little bit of information, we can know that his audience are believers. This letter is addressed to believers, and it's addressed to believers in difficult times. These are not, in other words, the unbelieving, evil, rich people who are persecuting and even murdering righteous people. So I know that these verses that we just read, you see, are not addressed at you. That's why I said you can take a little breath and relax. He didn't aim that, that gun at you with those verses. That raises a question. Well, if these few verses really aren't addressed at his audience, then why are they there in the letter that he wrote to them? I think that's a great question. Why are they there? Three answers to that, which will be really the, the message this morning. First, these words serve as a warning to the evil or to the wicked rich. I put that in there just to see if I could say it without saying wicked witch. <laughs> I, I was going to write evil rich, and I thought wicked, wicked, I still can't say it, wicked rich. <laughs> it's more catchy. If a person like that happens to come across this letter, if they happen to hear it being read or have opportunity to read it themselves, this, these words stand as a warning to them. They may think that all is well. They may think that they are living the high life. They, but James warns them that it is all an illusion. All is not well. James says there is a God who will judge he says there in verse 4, this God is the Lord of hosts. That literally means the Lord of the armies, the armies of heaven. And he says of the Lord of hosts that he is listening to the cries of the victims here. He is hearing, he is keeping track, and that ought to send a shiver down the spine of these evil rich people if they hear that, the Lord of heaven the Lord of the armies of heaven hears every cry of your victims and he's keeping track. There's no one who is above the Lord of the armies of heaven. There was no one, there's no place to hide. There is no one who can stop him. And that ought to frighten them, these evil rich people. Verse 5, he says of these evil rich people, he says, you only think of yourself. You think you're doing well. 
but you're, you're fattening yourself up for a day of slaughter. Every day you continue in this path that you are going, you're fattening yourself up for slaughter. You know, ranchers fatten up their cattle to take them to the market to be slaughtered. Every other animal that, that is taken and slaughtered, whether pigs or, or uh, lambs or whatever, they're taken, they are fattened up for the day of slaughter. And the animals don't know any better of what, they don't know what's coming. But he says to these evil rich people, let me tell you what's coming, and you're doing this to yourself. Stern warning. It says, verse 6, you've condemned the righteous because they can't touch you. They can't resist you. And you think you're untouchable. But you're not. Back in verse 3, he says, you've laid up treasure for the last days. You know, as Christians, Jesus told us to store up treasure in heaven. We to lay up treasure in heaven, but he says, these folks have laid up treasure for the last days. It's not in heaven. And it's not a treasure that they want. It is eternal destruction. And James is saying, folks, if this describes you, these evil rich, then whether you're reading this in James' day or whether you're hearing it today in the 21st century, he says, be warned. There is a God. He is judge. And there is judgment coming. And this is really, these are words of mercy. Because the very fact that it is here is saying, if you're hearing this warning, there is opportunity There is opportunity to repent and turn to Jesus and find forgiveness and be saved. So that's the first reason why these words are here, even though they're not addressed to us. They are here as a warning to the evil, wicked, rich unbelievers. But there's another purpose for these words, a second purpose, and that is that they are here as a warning to us as believers, to James' readers, the believers then, and to us today. We may not be the evil, wicked, unbeliever, but we should take heed that we don't fall into the same mindset and the same traps that these wicked, rich people fell into. By the way, let me first point out that this passage is not saying, nor is any passage in the Bible saying that all rich people are evil and wicked and that you cannot be a godly person and be rich. In fact, the Bible tells us about a number of very godly people of whom God approves who were also very wealthy. People like Abraham, people like Joseph, people like Job. People in the New Testament, like like Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, Lydia. So James isn't condemning all rich people. It is rich people who are evil and wicked as he has gone on to describe and who have not come to know Jesus. But there's a warning here for us because it's been said that riches are a lot like dynamite. Both wealth and dynamite have great power, great potential to do good things. 
both wealth and dynamite also have great power to do evil and to cause much damage and harm. And both of them are very dangerous if they are handled poorly and improperly and carelessly. The Bible has a lot to say about wealth. What we learn is that wealth, while it is not wrong to be wealthy, wealth has great danger. And so these words are important to us today as those who are the wealthy in the world that we are reminded of the dangers of wealth. And I see in this passage three dangers of riches. We don't want to succumb to the dangers of wealth. The first of these dangers that going back I see in verses 2 and 3 It says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. The first danger of wealth is that riches, earthly riches, are deceptive in their value. You see, earthly treasure doesn't last. They're only temporary, but people easily get caught up in the in the in riches, earthly riches and think that these things will last forever. But James says all these riches you value one day will be worthless. He calls attention really to three different ways. There were several ways as there are today that people in those days measured wealth. Today we measure wealth by money in the bank. We measure wealth by stock portfolios. We measure wealth by real estate. We measure wealth in a whole bunch of different ways. How many yachts you have? In those days, wealth was measured many different ways, but he mentions three. He singles out for one commodities. He says the riches you have, that really is the the stores of things you have. Commodities are things that you store up like grain, crops, oil, uh, various types of oil, olive oil, other oils and and other things that are marketable commodities. He says your commodities, your riches, your stores literally, he says, have rotted. You had them all stored up, but you went and opened the door and looked at it and oops. All the grain's gone bad. All the oil has gone bad. Hmm. Another way they measured wealth was clothing. Most common people just had one set of clothes or maybe two. If you got two, you're pretty well off. A second set of clothes. Rich people would have like we do today, vast wardrobes. And often had their wealth woven in, you know, gold threads and precious metals and precious stones woven into into their their clothing. He says, your garment, your wardrobe, however great it is, however vast it is, now you go out to it and you discover it is moth-eaten. And then he says, your gold and silver, another way they measured wealth was by precious metals. Gold, silver, jewelry. He says, your gold and silver have corroded. Have you seen ads on TV for gold and silver? You know, these days with the markets the way they are, the economy the way it is, inflation the way it is, the world situation the way it is, uh, money is, you know, that may not be worth much. You need gold and silver because that always has value. 
Now, I may not be much of an expert on such things, but I can guarantee you this. If you see one of those ads and you go online or on the phone and you, you buy a bunch of gold, you buy a bunch of silver, it arrives in an armored truck and they unload it at your house and you go and you put it in your safe or in your laundry room or wherever it is and then you go a few months from now and you go to look at your gold and silver and you pull out a gold bar and it's rusty. You pull out a bar of silver and it's rusty. You know what I can tell you? You've been had. What you've got there ain't gold and it ain't silver. You bought a phony, a fake. And James knows that gold and silver don't rust, they don't corrode. That's exactly his point. You go out there to check your stuff and it's rusty. What you thought you bought was gold weren't gold at all. And he says, so it is with all earthly treasures. What we think is really treasure, what we think is really valuable, what we think will last, what we think will endure, was a phony, a fake. None of it lasts. We're duped. When we amass earthly treasures and think they're going to stick around, we've been had. The story is told of a man who was uh, out walking along the beach and uh, looked down and saw a lamp there, one of those old Aladdin-type lamps. And he picks it up and he looks at it and he rubs it, and a genie appears. The genie says, I'll give you a wish, one wish. What do you want? And the guy thinks, thinks hard. Got it. I want to see next year's newspaper. You know, New York Times. Poof, there it is. Next year's newspaper. Oh! Quickly he rushes home. He opens it up to the, to the stock pages, you know, the stock exchanges. He starts looking through, oh! And he starts planning and strategizing how he's going to make a bunch of money. He's figured out, by next year, I'm going to be one of the richest men in the world. He's got a strategy, all how he's going to invest this and invest this and get more. And, and pretty soon, he's going to be just rich as can be. Oh, he's so excited. And he's looking. He happens to glance over, sees the other side. And he looks. He sees his name in the obituaries. All of a sudden, all those riches mean nothing. So it is. These evil rich people are rich in the world, but they, in terms of eternity, where it really counts, they are impoverished. Jesus said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. Brothers and sisters, as we look at his indictment of the evil rich, may it remind us that we very easily in our world, we drink the same Kool-Aid. <laughs> we buy into the same thinking. And we start valuing and treasuring the stuff of this world, which Jesus says is passing away. There's a second danger of riches that I see here in this text. And that is that riches, riches tend to breed entitlement. It's something I've noticed in myself and I've noticed in us. 
in all of us over my years on this planet. And that is that it seems to be that the more that we have, the more that we grow accustomed to having nice stuff. The more we think that we deserve it to have nice things. We get used to having more comfortable chairs, more comfortable cars, more comfortable everything, higher quality everything. We get used to having more, a little more prestige, a little more respect. We start to expect it, even demand it. After all, I've worked hard. I've saved well. I deserve this. We get used to using our wealth to secure better seats at the concerts and the sporting events and wherever we go. We get used to getting moved ahead a little bit in the line for whatever. We get used to having better cuts of meat and better stuff and the bigger piece of the pie. And we begin to think we deserve that may not say it, but we think it, how easily that leads to bribing or pressuring others to bend the rules or break the rules or at least skirt the system to get us special treatment. You see, while we indulge ourselves, we ignore the needs and concerns and even the good of others. And that becomes the soil in which the cheating and defrauding and the theft that he talked about for those evil rich people, that's the soil where that's born. And how easily those seeds grow in us. Just the more we get. A sense of entitlement. Thirdly, a third danger that I see here in this passage, a danger of wealth, is that riches can turn our heart from God. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus has told the parable of the soils. We don't have time to go there. But over in verse 22, he's explaining that parable and he warns about how the deceitfulness of riches, he says, can choke out the spiritual life of a person. Riches, he says, are deceitful. They can turn our heart away from God. Back in chapter 6 of Matthew, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. And there Jesus warns that when we make earthly stuff our treasure, it will replace God as our master. Because as he says, you cannot serve two masters, so you can't serve both God and money. Likewise, James, uh, we were there a few weeks ago back in chapter 4. James warned us that we got to be careful lest we become friends with the world. And you recall he said that friendship with the world, and that means when we become friends with the world as well as what the world values, what the world treasures, the treasures, the riches of the world, when that becomes our friend, he says, Friendship with the world is enmity with God. See how very easily the wealth of the world can 
woo and seduce our heart away from our love for God. Be careful of that. When friendship with the world becomes enmity with God, it shouldn't surprise us that that here now in chapter 5 of James, James says that such a person who has given themselves fully over to riches can eventually become the type of person who will persecute, even murder, a righteous person, an innocent person, because they are an enemy of God. So while this isn't addressed to us about as wicked, rich unbelievers, there certainly is some application for us to learn because how quickly we join in some of those ways of thinking. But there's a third reason that this warning is here, which I want to close with. It's in verses 7 through 11. James expounds upon it a little bit more there. And that is that this warning to these wicked rich is here as an encouragement for those who are their victims. It's an encouragement to those who are suffering because of those who have the money and the power and who are evil and who are oppressing God's people. And while this is good information for us and it's valuable for us, this is essential information for millions of our brothers and sisters in Jesus around the world who live under daily the daily reality of persecution and poverty. Notice what he says here in verse 7. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. We talked about it this morning during the Advent reading. We sang about it. We talked about it during the communion. Jesus is coming back. The Lord is coming. That is a central part of our faith. It is our hope. It is our expectation. Paul says... If there isn't resurrection and if there isn't return of Jesus, we're, we're, in, we're doomed. <laughs> we're wasting our time. He says, be patient. Be patient. The Lord is coming. How many of us struggle with being patient? <laughs> we all do. And it's hard to be patient, especially when things are not going well. When the world is against us, when the system is against us, when there are those oppressing us and making our life miserable, when life isn't going the way we think it ought to go, when we're suffering, when we're struggling, it's very hard to be patient. And James says, I get it. We wonder, is Jesus really coming back? Peter says, yes, he is. He's not slow about his promise, but be patient. Is it worth it to wait for him? James says, consider the farmer. Consider the farmer. Think about that. The farmer labors and labors. It is, I I don't know of anything which is much harder work than farming. I've known farmers. There's a lot of work preparing the soil to be ready to plant crops. That's hard work. Now you've got to plant the crop. That's hard work. Then after you plant the crop, you've got to have patience to wait. 
and wait and wait for those seeds to finally sprout something. There, there, something's growing. And then the work starts. Now that the stuff's growing, now you've got to work harder. You've got you to work hard to keep the stuff watered because of the heat. You're fighting the heat. You're fighting the pests that are attacking the, the, the plants. You're fighting the weeds that are, that are trying to choke out the plants. You've got to work, 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 work. What keeps the farmer going? He says here, what keeps the farmer going is that there's harvest coming. There's harvest coming. And with the harvest comes reward. He says here, it's precious fruit. What's his point? His folks, I get it. It's hard to wait. Consider the farmer and we know this. The Lord is coming. And when the Lord comes, harvest is coming. And when the harvest comes, there's precious fruit. There's reward. Hang in there. Dear friends, verse 8, you also, he says, be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So a second bit of encouragement here is stay strong. Be like the farmer. Encourage your heart, remembering that the harvest is coming. Remember, there's, there's reward coming. Three times, by the way, in this little section, he uses the word patience. He says, we've got to have patience, we've got to wait. It's hard waiting. I get it. It's hard. Three times he calls our attention to the coming of the Lord. Why should we wait? Why should we stay strong? Because here it is. The Lord is coming. His coming is at hand, he says. It means it's imminent. It can be any day, any time. Be ready. Be ready. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. Do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. When I first sat down to study this passage and I read that, and I'm, the first time I tried to teach on this, I'm trying to figure out, what in the world does that verse have to do with everything else he's talking about here? Seems like that should be earlier in the book when he was talking about not judging each other. Remember that? And here he's talking about don't grumble against each other. Why is that here in the middle of talking about riches and being patient and waiting for the return of the Lord. Well, it's this. Has it ever happened in your home where one of your kids went off to school or went off somewhere and had a bad day and they come home and they take it out on mom? You don't have to raise hands. It's probably happened in your home. Or dad goes off to work and had a bad day at work, and he comes home, and he he takes it out on the kids, the dog. Ever happen? Have you ever seen that happen where people have a bad day over here, and they take it out on the people over here? You wonder why this is here? These people are having a bad life out there. And he says, don't let the bad circumstances out there with the evil rich people who are oppressing you and everything's going bad there, don't let that bleed over in here, in the church, where we start beating up on each other. He says, don't turn on each other. Don't grumble against each other, brothers. I get it, it's hard to wait, and life is stinking out there at times, but be patient. Why? Because the judge is coming. Justice is coming. The judge, he says, is standing at the door. Again, his return is certain and it's imminent. 
It can be at any time. Jesus may not come back. He said it already. He, he's, it's imminent. He may not come back for a thousand years, but he might come back at any moment. We may not get through this sermon. And you thought, I knew he was going to keep going for a long time. No, I'm going, to, I'm going to wrap it up short very quickly here because I'm over time. I apologize. But he says, the judge is coming and it's going to be soon. When he comes, it's going to be quick. And when he does, justice is coming. And know this, while it is hard to wait and while it is hard to stand and be faithful and follow Jesus when you're being oppressed and distressed, know this, when the judge comes, there is justice. And the judge will right every wrong. There is vindication for his people. Justice is coming. One last final encouragement here. Verses 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, he says in verse 10, Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He says, I get how hard it is to stay faithful. But he says, do, do me a favor. He says, look back and take note. Remember our faithful predecessors. Look at those who remained faithful when it was hard. He calls to attention the prophets. Doesn't name one because it's true for all of them. Every one of them, they had a hard row because people abused them and persecuted them and they stayed faithful. At the hands of evil men, they stayed faithful. He says, remember them. And so you heard about Job. Job who suffered for no apparent reason. It wasn't at the hands of evil men. He just suffered and it, for no apparent reason and yet he remained faithful. He says, remember them. Because when we look back at those folks, what do we say? Wow, we honor those people. We praise them. And he says, they are blessed. They have received reward from God. And, they are, and he says, we're to look at them and we are to count them as blessed. Why are they blessed? James gives three reasons, and he doesn't elaborate, and I won't either because we don't have time, but I'm just going to tell you what they are. But there are three reasons that you and I can take to the bank, that you and I can take home today. If you're going through suffering and difficult times, three truths about God and about suffering that will help us stand when it's hard, that will help us be patient when it's hard. Here they are. First of all, he says, when we look at Job and the prophets, he says there, verse 11, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Truth number one to note here, God has a purpose. Even in our suffering, even in our pain, God is working a purpose. Secondly, he says, you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate. God is compassionate he cares for us. He loves us. And not just that he cares and loves us. Compassion has that view also of empathy. He sympathizes with our hurts. He feels our pain. Jesus, believe me, knows what it is to feel pain. And lastly, he says, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. God is merciful. What does that mean? 
means that whatever he's doing, he's doing it for your good. Mercy is where you give people good, even when they deserve bad. He is giving us good. God has purpose in our pain. He is compassionate. He is merciful. I don't know what you're going through right now or what you will go through in the days, months, years ahead. But that's what will give you patience and strength to keep going. Remember, God has purpose. He's compassionate. He's merciful. Father, thank you for these words. It's been a long morning. We've run late, but we needed to hear this. Because we got a lot of folks here who are undergoing pain and suffering and difficulty and trials. They need to remember they can lean on you. You have purpose. You're compassionate. You're merciful. We also needed to hear this because we are the rich. I pray we're not the evil rich or the unsaved rich. But Father, we are the rich. How we need to be reminded to put, keep riches in perspective. As Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. These other things will be added. We can enjoy the good gifts you have given, but Father, may we use them well. May we be mindful of the dangers of wealth. And may we invest well and live well for the things that really matter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May God bless you as you grow in your walk with him this week.